I've had a few opportunities in my life to travel abroad. My longest stay was for five months, and it was a study abroad program in Vienna. Now, I had a blast. I loved the people. I loved the culture. Uh, I loved the beauty of the Alps and all of the skiing and hiking opportunities uh, they provided. I loved being able to get cheap tickets to world-class orchestras and operas. Uh, and if you know me, you know that I really loved the food. But as much as I enjoyed my time studying abroad, there was one thing that Austria could never be. Home. When the plane landed and I finally got back to the States, I did what any self-respecting southern boy would do. I went straight to Chick-fil-A, <laughs> and I ordered three chicken biscuits. I was desperate to embrace the creature comforts of home. I was ready to see gasoline posted in gallons and not in liters, and to see distance posted in miles and not in meters. Apologies to you metric system enthusiasts. I was ready to start watching football played the right way with your hands. And I was ready to hear English spoken the correct way with an American accent. As much as I loved Austria, it was great to be home. If I'm honest, though, and I hate when people say if I'm honest, the longer I've walked with Christ and been conformed to his image, the less even my home feels like home. Whether that was my first home in Florida or my new home in Medfield. And as I've talked to many of you who trust in Christ, I know that I'm not alone in this realization. The closer we grow to Christ, the more we feel like strangers and exiles in this world, which is exactly what the Bible calls us. And in this life, we get glimpses of the beauty of what home really could be. But we long for what we don't yet have. In our text today, in John 14, Jesus' disciples are very troubled. And Jesus wants to comfort his disciples by reminding them that this world is not their home. He wants to remind them that he, and he wants to remind us that he will take us home. He wants to teach us how to get home. And he reminds us why we can trust such magnificent promises. So pick up with me in John chapter 14, and then we'll pray. First four verses here. He says this to his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you loved us so much, that you called us to yourself, that you redeemed us by the blood of your Son, that you've revealed yourself to us, that you're conforming us to your image, and that you love us so much. You loved us enough to give us your Son. Lord, as we look to your word this morning, we come as those in need of our daily bread. We need to feed upon the bread of life this morning. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see all that your word has and give us hearts to obey the truth which you convey to us. And Heavenly Father, I pray desperately as well that you would empower me by your spirit to proclaim your truth and not my own wisdom. My efforts are not sufficient to your glory. Jesus, we pray that you would be with us Give us ears to hear. In your name we pray. Amen. So our first point this morning, Jesus is promising to take his disciples to their eternal home. Jesus' disciples are troubled. That's why Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And if we think about their particular situation, we can see why. These guys have given up everything to follow Jesus. And seemingly to them, because they're not listening, out of nowhere Jesus is saying things like, one of you is going to betray me. Uh, Jesus is saying things like, I'm going to depart. My hour has now come, and where I'm going, you cannot come. So just remember that these guys have been following Jesus for three years. They've given uh, up everything in order to follow him. And now they, in some sense, think Jesus is abandoning them. We also find, if you look at chapter 13, verse 21, that Jesus, earlier on, was, same word, troubled in his spirit. Dear friends, the question is not whether or not you will find yourself troubled in life. Jesus in John 16 says, in this world you will have trouble or tribulation. Uh, So the question is not whether or not we'll have trouble. The question is what do we do when we have trouble? Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus wants to comfort his disciples with a promise. Uh, What is that promise? Well, the promise is that when we go through life and we experience trouble, we can comfort ourselves by turning to Christ. Uh, Just last week, I was sitting at a coffee shop and I was talking to this man and As it always does, uh, the conversation turned to what do I do, and it came out that I'm a pastor, and generally when people find that out, the conversation tends to die off. (laughs) In this particular situation, uh, the man was actually interested. We got talking, and I I come to find out I was talking to a Jewish man, and and he said, you know, I just don't understand. He was a really nice guy. He said, I just don't understand why there's so much trouble in this world. Why is there so much hatred and fighting and killing Friends, we live in a troubled world. Every human heart is naturally inclined to hate what God loves. 
That's what the Bible teaches. And so it's no question that we live in a world where there is trouble. But Jesus turns to his disciples and he comforts them. And this is the, this is the metaphor he uses. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If you want your heart to not be troubled, focus on this. In my father's house are many rooms. Jesus is promising them an eternal dwelling with God the Father. Uh, Paul uses the same metaphor in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is what he says. He compares our earthly home to a tent and our heavenly home. Uh, this is what he says. He says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be put, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. So he's contrasting our temporary earthly tent with our eternal home, which is not built by human hands, uh, the greatest cities of history often find themselves lying in ruins. The city of God is eternal. Christ is calling us to put our hope in that eternal city made by God. And he's comparing it to a, a house here. He says there's many rooms, many dwelling places, and I'm going, at least in part, to prepare a place for you. This world, you're going to have trouble, but know that there is an eternal dwelling place for you that I'm going to prepare in the house of my Father. That's good news. And that is good news which can comfort troubled hearts even now. So I want to ask you, what is it that makes home home? Personally, I think more than anything else, it is the presence of those whom we love. That's why we have so much joy in the holidays uh, when we get to gather with our families and we, we get to get this foretaste of glory. We have joy because we're around those whom we love. And so when we think about our eternal dwelling we recognize that every glimpse of glory we've had will be fulfilled in a, a much greater way than we've experienced here on earth. And every tarnish of sin, every heartbreak, every tear that we experience in this world will be wonderfully absent. What is it that makes our eternal home home? It's the presence of the one whom we love. Jesus says that in verse 3. That where I am, you may also be. The disciples are heartbroken that Jesus is leaving them, but he's saying, you will be with me, not just for a short human lifespan, but for eternity. And not only Christ, but the ones we love who are in Christ. Before we move on, I'd like to apply this to us. How do we, uh, when, when we are experiencing trouble, how can this be an encouragement to us? 
Uh, well, the first way that it's an encouragement to us is that uh, we recognize that what the text says is true. This world is not our home. And so if you're expecting to feel like a stranger in an exile in this world, that, that's half the battle right there. Uh, I, I forget who said it, but I've heard it many times, that uh, the world makes sin feel normal and righteousness feel strange. And so if you're following Christ, then the path of righteousness and obedience to God will feel strange. And so we just need to embrace that. But also knowing our future hope and knowing where home is, that it's with God in eternity, brings us peace and comfort in the present. Listen, this is not escapism. This isn't just imagining some fantasy island to get us out of a, a difficult present situation. No, uh, the reality of home makes all the difference for the present. Jesus, uh, not Jesus, C.S. Lewis said that those, are, those who are heavenly minded actually do the most earthly good. Here's what I mean by that. When I was a child, uh, my grandfather was a landlord and he had a bunch of uh, apartments and he would hire my father and me and my older brother to go and cut the yards, do all the landscaping at these apartments. And I hated every minute of it. <laughs> I did not want to do that in the Florida heat of summer. But eventually, I figured something out. Uh, nowadays, I've figured out that my father was instilling a good work ethic in me, for which I'm grateful. But, but back then, I figured something else out. Uh, at the end of the four hours or so in the morning in which we were cutting yards, two things would happen. One, my father would pay my brother and I, and so that was kind of nice to be a kid with some jingle in your pocket. But honestly, that wasn't the reward I most treasured. The reward I most treasured was that I knew at the end of cutting all of those yards, we would go to the gas station and get a Coke Icy. And I loved Coke Ices. I love Coke Ices to this day. Uh, many times I will take my kids to McDonald's under the guise of loving my children, but if I'm being honest about my heart motive, it's actually so that I can have a Coke Icy. And I was so excited. But you see, if I was cutting yards, and I'm just cutting yards, and it's drudgery, and I don't like it at all, it, it's just painful. But if I'm cutting yards and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, there's a reward at the end of this, that makes all the difference for what I'm doing now and my attitude. I was a better worker. I was excited. And so that's the reality. We can be comforted now. And knowing where our eternal home is, knowing that we will be with Christ, changes everything for the present. Now, that's a bold claim. Jesus says, I will come and take you to be with myself in my father's household. How can we know? That it's true. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, first, Jesus has promised that he will bring about an eternal home. Next, he wants to explain how they can get there. So pick up with me in verse 5. Uh, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through 
me. Uh, Thomas asks a very natural question. And Thomas is looking at things with earthly eyes. But he says to Jesus, you're telling us that you're leaving us. Uh, you're telling us that we know the way. But i got to be honest with you, Jesus, I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no idea where you're going. Jesus, in this point, is essentially saying this to his disciples. He asks them to pull out their spiritual smartphones and pull up Google Maps, not Apple Maps, but Google Maps. And Jesus is saying, I am going to plug in the address to your eternal dwelling place in this. And you already know the way. But Thomas is confused. And dear friends, if you are outside of Christ, this is the natural state of every person. Confusion. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what happens after death. And we work really hard to avoid pressing questions like, why am I here? Do I have a creator? What does my creator demand of me? Have I met those demands? What happens to me if I don't meet the demands of my creator? And is there any way if I don't meet those demands be reconciled with him. Well, dear friends, Christianity provides a clear answer to all of those foundational questions. You may not like the answer, but it is a clear answer. This is what Jesus says in verse 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm going to break this down and begin with Jesus as the way. There's an old navigator's evangelism strategy called the bridge. It's an illustration. And uh, what they do is they, they take chalk, which I don't have at the moment, uh, but they draw a chasm, right? So there's, there's a chasm and there's a shore over here and a shore over here. You can think of it like a canyon, a, a bottomless canyon. Now, all of humanity is on one shore, and because of the fall and the entrance of sin into the world, God is on the other. Now, the bad news is that uh, if we, as humans, are to stay on this first shore, God promises this is the city of destruction, to quote John Bunyan. Uh, this is the place that will not last. This is where those who abide will be destroyed. That's the bad news of the gospel. That's the consequence of sin. We have been cut off from our creator. And there is a bottomless chasm between us and him. Now, some people approach us and say, well, I am more spiritually fit than most. I am more uh, morally able than most. And I think that I can get to the other side. But I want you to imagine uh, me trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. It's just not going to happen. Uh, I'd like you to imagine Usain Bolt trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. He's probably going to make it further than I... Well, he's definitely going to make it further than I did. <laughs> Maybe. But he's still not going to make it across. 
But here's the good news of Christianity. There's a chasm which separates us from God, but God in his love has made a way to cross. There is one bridge across this gulf that separates us from a holy God, and in his love he has provided it, and the bridge is a cross. It is the cross of Jesus Christ because Jesus died to make a way for you to be reconciled to the God who loves you. Sin has exacted a terrible price, but God in his love has made a way. He has made one way, one path to himself. And that is an encouraging thing to Jesus' disciples. The second thing Jesus says is that I am the truth. That is a very important statement. God, particularly the Christian God, a personal, transcendent creator, God, is the epistemological foundation for truth. I know that was a big word. I shouldn't have used that. Here's what I mean. You're all like, here's what I mean. God defines reality. And the Christian God has made belief in truth possible. And I can argue this later. Christianity has made the concept of reality and of objective truth possible. It's the foundation of Western civilization. Because there is a God who defines reality. Now, if you want to see what it looks like when belief in Jesus recedes from a culture, you can look around today. Because no longer do we in the West believe that there is a capital T truth. But when you go and you talk to your friends, what kind of truth do they talk about? They talk about lowercase t truth, relative truth, and they use words like my truth. I'm living out my truth. That can be your truth. And even if our two truths are absolutely irreconcilable, contradictory, I cannot say that your truth is false because each of us only has our perspective on truth. And truth is relative to every person. But Jesus says, I am the truth. And there is such a thing as objective truth. I don't know about you, but I would very much like the engineers designing my airplanes and my bridges to believe in objective truth and not their truth. We saw this play out recently when the presidents of our Ivy League institutions were brought before Congress to answer for the rampant anti-Semitism on campus. And not one of them would actually unilaterally condemn anti-Semitism. They would not say that it is wrong to hate Jews on the basis of their ethnicity and their religion. And when the former president of Harvard was pressed on this later, she said, I failed to live up to my 
truth. Now, the problem with this statement is that even if she were living up to my truth, whatever that is at the current moment, if truth is relative to every single individual, then you do not have a moral standing to unilaterally condemn anything or to say anything is objectively right or anything is objectively wrong. You need a belief in a personal God who defines reality in order to do that. And that's why none of these presidents have called anti-Semitism a bad thing. They say, well, it depends on the context. God is the ground for truth. And when God disappears, so does capital T, truth. The last thing Jesus says is this, I am the life. He's claiming this. Elsewhere in the Gospel of John, he said that I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I have life in myself as opposed to life being derived from anything else. That is what it means to be God. God is eternal. God is the source of of all life. Your present life is derived from God's life as he created you. And in saying I am the life, that means that when he promises you eternal life, he can do so because he is eternal, because he is the source of all life. Now there are many ill-fated investment schemes out there to enhance longevity or to upload our consciousness onto some digital platform, but these are all ill-fated. Because Jesus is the only one who can truly offer life eternal. Uh, the scriptures say that it is appointed for a man once to die and then to face judgment. Jesus offers life because he is the source of life. Now, Jesus in love, and I want you to see this as in love, because there's nothing more loving than the truth. Jesus in love wants to make sure there's no question about what he's saying. Which is why at the end of 6 he says this. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now there are two ways that people typically think about this claim. The first sounds something like this. And you've probably heard it. That sounds awfully exclusive. How can any one religion claim to have a market on the truth? What about people who don't believe in Jesus? How can any one religion believe that it is true and others are false? Now, there are some assumptions embedded in these statements. The one obvious assumption is that no one religion can claim to be the true one. There cannot be one God who provides only one way to himself. The second assumption that's in here that's more subtle and often unstated is this. If there is one God who provides one way to himself, he is morally obligated to govern the world in a way that I see fit. God should do things my way. And if he doesn't do things my way, I'm not going to believe in him. 
This claim is exclusive, but let's be clear about why it is often rejected. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ is not a moral problem. God didn't have to save anyone. We all rebelled against him. It's not a rational problem. There's no logical contradiction here. Uh, the reason it is rejected is a preferential problem. Uh, the rejection of salvation through Christ alone, I reject, this at tr- at, I reject this as true because I desperately want it to not be true. Nobody says it that way. They say it this way. I could never accept a God who only provides one way to himself. Listen, when I had my first exam in the weed-out course known as general chemistry in college, I got a 61. And in my mind, I wanted nothing more than for my answers to be true. But wanting a different reality did not make that true. I had a 61 and desperately needed to change my ways. I pray that if you have objections to Christ as the singular pathway to God, that at the very least you would not stake your present life and the life to come upon preferences, but honestly and earnestly and humbly seek God, seek the truth, explore Jesus Christ through his word, read the gospels and consider him for yourself. So that's the first way. That sounds awfully exclusive. There's a second way to look at this as well. And it's an analogy that I've stolen from someone else as well, so I can't take credit. But I want you to imagine this morning that because of your own life choices, you are terminally ill. Now, we recognize that in reality, we're all going to die, so in a sense, we're all terminally ill. But let's say that um, you have eaten very poorly your entire life. You haven't exercised. You have drunk to excess regularly, and so your liver is just toast. And you've been a chain smoker, and so you've got, you know, stage five lung cancer that has metastasized everywhere. I know there's no stage five, but I'm being dramatic. This is the situation for you. You've already tried every treatment known to man. The chemo has failed. The gene therapy has failed. All the experimental treatments have failed. And you look at your doctor and he says to you, I'm sorry, you just, because of what you've done, you are going to die. You say, doctor, is there any hope? Is there any treatment, any pathway we haven't explored? And he says to you, there is one treatment you haven't tried. And you say, well, tell me about it. What's the success rate for this treatment? He says, the success rate is 100%. You say, 100%? This sounds too good to be true. What's the catch? I get it. It must be insanely expensive, and I could never afford it. The doctor says, yes, that's true. Insurance doesn't cover this treatment, and it is insanely expensive. But here's the good news. A wealthy benefactor, at great cost to himself, has offered to pay the price for this 100% effective treatment for you. And it's the only option that you have left. 
Well, I don't know, Doc. That sounds awfully exclusive. Why aren't there more treatment options? I think I'll stick with my essential oils. No. No one's going to say that. And dear friends, the reality is what I'm describing is every single one of us. We're terminally ill because of our sin. And there is one solution to our sin, and it is because Jesus Christ loved you enough to bear the wrath of God for you. And if you will cling to his promise and trust in him, you can be reconciled to God, and he will take you home. He will take you to himself. Not for a time, but forever. Say, how do we know? How can we trust? Because God alone can make that sort of promise. If I'm here to you on my own authority, making this promise to you, you can say, yeah, yeah, promptly ignore me and go out and enjoy this nice sunny day. But I'm not the one making this promise. Jesus is. So Jesus in verses 7, 14, 7 to 14 is going to explain why they can get there. Pick up with me in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Everything that you have heard from me so far depends entirely on the identity of Jesus Christ. The promise is, your sin has separated you from God, but I will take you home to be with the God who created you to enjoy fellowship with him. And I'm the only one who can do that. All of this rests on the identity of Christ. Does Jesus have the authority to make such a pronouncement? In Christianity, everything rises or falls with how you answer the question, who is Jesus? Was he a good moral teacher? Was he an example for us to emulate? Is he just here to help us on our path to moral improvement, giving us religious and spiritual exercises to help us perfect our already pretty good nature? Or is he the son of God who came to die because we could not save ourselves? And was he actually resurrected from the dead? And does he reign over the world now in glory? And is he promising to bring you home to himself? Listen, if Jesus is not who he presents himself to be, and the Bible is unambiguous that the second option is who he presents himself to be, if he's not that, then forget about him. He will do you no good. And he's a liar. 
but if he is. Now, when I talk to people who uh, would not consider themselves to be Christians, but who also aren't like emotionally invested in rejecting it, I think you guys know what I'm talking about there, uh, the question I usually get is, but how do I know? How can I? It sounds great. It sounds too good to be true that God wants to reconcile me through faith. I don't have to earn it. It's a gift. But how can I know that this is true? I'd like to flip the script this morning. I'd like to ask you to put on your sympathetic thinking cap for a moment for the sake of the argument. And I want you to to flip that question and ask, how do I know it's not true? How can I be certain it's false? What am I grounding my objection to this truth in? It's my experience that if a person is willing to entertain the question, what if this is true, what if Jesus really is who he says he is? If that person genuinely seeks God to reveal that truth to him or to her, if they humbly are praying, God, please help me to find you, and they look to Christ in his word, they very may well just find themselves believing it's true. It's happened for billions. So I want you to ask this question as we close this point. If this is true, if Jesus really were who he says he is, what would this mean for me? Jesus turns to them, and his argument is essentially the same from verse 1, where he says, believe in God, or you believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, The Bible teaches that belief in God is universal that God has left evidence of himself in creation. There's never, ever been found a primitive tribe that did not have some concept of a deity. Uh, Those who actually claim to be atheists are relatively uh, a small percentage, but the Bible teaches us that even those who deny God are actually suppressing the truth that is clear to themselves. So the Bible is clear. Everyone already believes in God... Jesus is saying this in our last verses here. He's saying, I am the God you already believe in. I can make these pronouncements because I am the God you already believe in. Look at verse 7. He says to Thomas, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And then Philip jumps in to help his buddy out. And he says, Lord, show us the Father. It'll, it'll be enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. <laughs> you see, Jesus' disciples knew him. Of course they knew him. But they didn't know him. They had not yet grasped his divine nature. And Jesus goes on and he says, do you not believe 
that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. This is what's known by theologians as the doctrine of mutual indwelling. If you want another $25 word, it's circumincessio. Go use that at lunch and impress people. But it's this Trinitarian idea, right? We're dealing with the first two people of the Trinity, the Father and Son. Next week we'll get to the Holy Spirit. But it's, it's this idea that, that God the Father indwells God the Son. And God the Son indwells God the Father. And there are distinctions, but they are one essence. Distinctions of person, of origin, and yet one God. <laughs> and so Jesus can accurately say to us, if you've seen me, you have laid eyes on the creator of all things. You have laid eyes on God the Father. Dear friends, if that is true, and I do believe it is, that changes everything. And he says to them, the words I say, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. He's saying, believe on account of my words. Over and over and over in John, Jesus says, my words are sufficient to engender faith. If you're waiting for the perfect sign, it will never happen. Over and over in John, we see people witness miraculous things, even the resurrection of Lazarus, and then chant in chapter 19, crucify him, rejecting the Messiah. And Jesus says, even so, if you don't believe for the words, please believe on account of the works. Now that word works, we immediately assume he means miraculous works, and that's part of it, but the word is broader. It's everything that Jesus has done and demonstrated. Believe on account of what I've said, of what I've done, of even, yes, the supernatural things that I've used to validate my authority. In a few months, when we get to the resurrection in chapter 20, I hope you'll still be here. Uh, I will discuss the plausibility of the resurrection, how it is the, one th the, it is the one explanation that makes the most sense of the historical data that we have. Believe on account of the words. Verses 12 to 14, Jesus says those who believe will then go on to do greater works. He says, they'll also do the works I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. In other words, it's a good thing that I'm leaving you. Later on, he'll say, it's because I'll send you my helper. Uh, so what does Jesus mean when he says, when I leave, the one who believes will do the works that I do and greater things than these he will do. I'm going to be honest, this was kind of hard this week. <laughs> I, I really wrestled over this, and I sought uh, commentary after commentary trying to understand this. Here's what I think he's saying here. R remember that works are broader than just miraculous things. Uh, Jesus says that you'll do greater works than me. How are they greater? Well, one, I think they're greater because there will be a greater number of people doing them. Because God is in the process of filling the earth with his glory as he reconciles person after person to himself through Jesus Christ. And those people bear witness to the truth of who Jesus is. And so just in, in sheer scope, there are more and more and more people every day who are representing Jesus Christ. 
The second reason I think that it is greater is because they will be empowered by this spirit that Jesus is about to talk about. Uh, I want you to, to remember that Jesus has done lots and lots and lots of miracles already, including raising the dead. And by the time he goes to the cross, he has been largely rejected. Jesus disappears. He goes back to heaven. He ascends after his resurrection. And he empowers his disciples with the Holy Spirit. They then go out and perform greater works. What do I mean by that? Their works are far more effective at engendering faith than even Jesus's. And that's by God's design. Christianity in the three centuries conquered the Roman Empire. And it continues to spread around the world to this day. So that's what I think Jesus means by greater works. Any promises that whatever you ask in my name, I will do. And it will glorify the Father in the Son. In other words, Jesus wants you to pray to him and to ask him to work through you. And if you pray in his name, and that uh, stands in for according to his will, he will answer you, and it will glorify God the Father. Well, we began with the premise that this world is not our home, that we all longed for a better home. How then are we to live in the present in this world when our hearts are often troubled? I'm going to close our time together this morning by allowing the word of God to conclude for us. I want you to consider from Hebrews 11 the example of the saints who came before us. In short, the Christian above all else is called to live by faith. This is what Hebrews 11.1 1 says. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. Our hope is our eternal home with God. Here's what it says in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received the power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born Many descendants, as many as the star of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And he's summarizing all of these people in the Old Testament who lived by faith. And he says, the author of Hebrews says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them. And greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land which they came from, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, 
They desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. 